This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. I'm Mira Sebasudi. It's our health and living segment and Friday, Dr. George Lee in the studio with us. Hello, Good George. How are you today? I'm fabulous. It's, it's December now. You know, we're not going to talk about anything depressing. It's school holidays. There's hardly any traffic on the road. And we're going to get like, you know, uh, all sorts of different topics. Today, we're going to talk about something completely non-depressing, nothing about cancer or, you know, things like that, (laughs) or infertility, suicide in men in the last four weeks, right? Men's health. All right, men's health, that's right. The Y chromosome. I met somebody who said it was a very interesting conversation. I said, I learned a lot, the insignificant Y chromosome. Yeah, that's diminishing. And my nurse just said, you just keep saying, why, why, why chromosome, why? Why do you talk about that? It's like, you know, it's like, we had enough of that. Yes, it's as insignificant significant as you say it is it is that's what makes you male (laughs) (laughs) and if it is deteriorating or whatever then you know i'm concerned yeah well uh, we're all concerned we're moving away from that a whole month of men's health talk in the month of november that's right for november but we have in the studio with us very young gung-ho and very optimistic back from the uk (laughs) that's right back from the uk um, into our system, Dr. Ahmad Fahim Ismail. He's a lecturer in clinical sciences at UITM. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ahmad. How are you today? Uh, very well, thank you, Mira. Thanks mm-hmm. for having me here. Thank you very You're much, George. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, why did you decide to come back? Right. Um, I've been training in urology in the UK for the last few years. And uh, I think um, I've completed my PhD on bladder cancer recently, sort of in 2014, and I feel that this is a at time King's, for... no less. King's College London, King's yes. Thank you. Cambridge. And, uh, no, no, no. King's, no, King's, King's in London. London. So, you know, some London. people think that's a little bit more prestigious than Cambridge. Oh, really? I obviously do. Well, I obviously so think so. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so I did finish my PhD there on bladder cancer and uh, thought um, I'd come back and see how I can contribute to urology in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and medicine, and in medicine, general. and medicine in general. But, right. uh, yes, so that's that's where I am. That's that's why I'm here. So you've been back six months now. Back six months, uh, been looked after very well in UITM. I think they're supporting my research and my career plans. But uh, and I'm also getting support from people like George, who sort of. I'm hoping to show me the path, and uh, and yeah, I think that it's been it's been a good six months uh, finding my feet, and uh, and yeah, I just have lots of people to thank for. Are you um, happy? I mean, we don't have enough urologists in the country, do we? Well, he's, he's very, very unique because he's an academician and an educationalist. So that's why, um, in many ways, he doesn't really fit the bill in an Malaysian setting. I particularly uh, am quite uh, excited to have today's shows because I would like to see his perspective of um, the education system in the UK mm-hmm. and why are they in a little bit of a tribulations at the moment with all these kind of like uh, um, problems about going on strike and what it, uh, what is going on. So it's kind of like a, he's quite fresh in there. He's got contact in there. I'm also quite keen to see how he views the Malaysian education is going forward in, in terms of medical education because he's in the heart of the UITM. He's a lecturer in anatomy, clearly going to progress in the academic route. He's not really doing the usual kind of like a, you know, come back to Malaysia, serve the government for three, four 
years and go to private sector, which is what most people do. And then <laughs> how did you get an exception? I mean, did, did you have to? No, no, he's not. He's just going to uh, well, explain. Well, well, why, why did you not follow the conventional route? I think the. I think my choice of doing the PhD was unconventional because a lot of people would go and do the PhD as well after their specialist training. So I think it's a lot easier to slot into the system. Whereas for me, I, do, I decided to do that in the middle of my training. So it's kind of it's disrupted. So it's an unusual situation, and I think it's lots of people. I find it difficult to fit in, and lots of people who try to help will also find it quite difficult to on where to slot me in. So I think, in in a way, I would for to work in Malaysia and even the UK, I still have to a, a few more years of training to do. And I think the balance between concentrating on the research and doing the clinical practice will take its toll mm. if I don't choose the path carefully. Mm. What research are you working on here? Well, I'm trying to refer, set up the research in urology and I'm sort of finding my way. But I think over the last six months, I've just been finding my feet and have not started drilling out a solid research proposal yet. But I think I will stay in urology, urological sciences for my research and bladder cancer especially. So I think build on my strength instead of starting something all over. All over. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the eyes of a clinician, he is the, the clever doctor who no. suddenly found out that, you know, he needed to do the research and development and actually take the, um, the sort of scientific basis of uh, medicine forward and then um, and we have very few people like that who are um, purely interested in the science part of it and then choose the academic route and then also will enhance on the education part because the, these are the pillars of making the new generations of the next um, generations of clinicians really. but I'm just curious I'm sorry I know we haven't come to what we we're supposed to be talking <laughs> about today but how different is Dr. Ahmad compared to um, the other researchers in universities, for example. Right, you know, you, you have two sets of, uh, you know, researchers. You get the um, pure scientist yeah. and then you get the clinicians who turn scientists. So he is a clinician who turns scientists. Scientist, okay. All right, I understand now. Thank you very much. Right, okay. okay. <laughs> so today's topic is about um, the Department of Health in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're attempting to push through a new contract for junior doctors that would force them to work longer hours without extra pain. And of course, these junior doctors were going to go on strike. Um, that didn't quite happen. Hasn't happened yet. Um, they've postponed it's deferred, it. right? Yes, it has been. Um, and these junior doctors actually make up half the medical workforce in the UK. And so I can't imagine if they go on strike, what's going to happen, actually. Um, so... What's really going on, um, Dr. Ahmad? You're coming fresh from the system. I mean, you were with the NHS, were you? Yes, I was. Okay, yeah. all right. So and what's going on? Were, okay. you, were you considered yeah, a junior doctor? Understand this. Actually, I, I don't even understand what's going on. Yeah, because first they say junior doctors, then they say you can be junior up to even 10 years of service. So, I mean, who's really? Were you a junior doctor? I was a junior doctor sort of before I came back because I think um, you become a, a junior doctor are all the doctors up to the stage where they become a consultant. Okay. So at the end of their training, they'll do the exit exam and become a consultant. Then they're no longer junior doctors. So in certain specialties, it'll take, well, on average, it'll take about eight years at least for doctors in the UK to be trained to become a consultant. But in certain specialties uh, where they're a lot more competitive, it can take up to about 15 years for that training to to well, to take place, 
um, specialities like urology, plastics, where everybody's sort of competing and everybody's doing their PhD in order to get onto the ladder to be, make themselves more competitive. So it, will, it does take certain certain doctors a lot a few a few more years to to do their training and become a senior doctor as mm-hmm. such. If and if you choose not to be a consultant, then you will always be a junior doctor. Is that is that is that what it means? Well, there's non-training grade as well. Well, um, you you get a group of people who just basically either so frustrated halfway through they quit, mm-hmm. or sometimes they um, stagnate their career in um, halfway point, and then they become something called um, uh, staff grade, and then they kind of like a constantly working under a consultant, so they just don't progress up to that point. Uh-huh. So, so that explains a lot. So you are considered junior doctor. Is that why you came back? So you're concerned about a salary cut. <laughs> so I have to, that's what they're worried about now. Uh, is it all about money? Now we got your secret. Uh, uh, no, 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 decided to impose and not negotiate anymore with the BMA on the junior doctor's contract. This is British medical. British, yeah, in, in, in the UK. So, so for those of us who are wondering who Jeremy Hunt is and what this problem is all about, um, you want to listen to this. Junior doctors have spoken and their voice is clear. We have a mandate for industrial action. And I think it's really important to say that doctors will not be taking this industrial action lightly. The government has said that we don't represent junior doctors. Today's result and the overwhelming mandate that junior doctors have given for strike action shows that we do. And we now call on the government to come with us to ACAS to clarify all of the misleading misinformation that they've given over the last few weeks to see if it is still possible to avert strike action. An important thing to remember is that we're not trying to stop patient care. Patient care will still continue. There will be doctors in hospitals giving emergency care to patients. We've made sure that we've given plenty of notice to the National Health Service so that plans can be laid to cope with the challenges of a day of industrial action by junior doctors. Patients can be confident that will continue to be safe services for them. That was Dr Mark Porter, I apologise, from the British Medical Association and that's pretty much what they're fighting for. Yeah. Um, so you were going to explain to us what, what, what exactly is um, going on there. Okay, so... The manifesto of the Tory, the uh, Conservative government in the last election was to introduce a seven-day service to the NHS in England. So basically, um, a patient, um, the service of clinics and radiology, all the things in the NHS at the moment is Monday to Friday. Correct. And then so what they're proposing is that um, Monday to Sunday, every day there'll be services. That's they have not stipulated that, but but more or less, uh, this is what is potentially can be the service in the future. That's, that's yes. Yeah. Okay. So isn't that? A, <laughs> you <laughs> sound. He sounds like he's on no, the no, stand. No, no, that's, that's right. Okay. Is, 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 is that a bad thing? It's not a bad thing um, if you actually put the new resources for that, not Mm. take away the resources during the week away. So what you're saying is that the government there is trying to utilise the same number of people but to squeeze out as much as possible out of uh, of the working hours. I think 
to squeeze out as much as possible. I think the government has squeezed out as much as possible for already. these people already. So I think, but they can't squeeze anymore. So they're actually just pulling what pulling one thing and putting pu- pulling it from one place and putting it in the other. All right. So and it's not going to improve their service. It's just going to redistribute the um, risks during throughout the week instead of at just having a, a, an excellent service, a complete service at the weekend. So we'll just end up with a fractured service oh, throughout right. the week. Okay. So why are the junior doctors so cross? What are they upset about? Well, they're not consulted. The uh, Secretary of State the um, for Jeremy Hunt refused to, well, de- yeah, refused to negotiate 20, all but one of the 22 conditions that were set out that's in the new contract. So the, I think, I think the doctors felt that they're being bullied into um, the new contract and it's just going to be imposed on them with or without negotiation. And I think they were uh, pushed to a corner and they had no other choice but to... Th- well, to ballot out for the strike. So what do they want? More salary? Um, more resources? What do they really want? I think the, re- I think the junior doctors are demanding to be treated fairly. Which is, what does that mean? It means that they should have a say in their future. They should not have pay cuts without any discussion or without... And they should not be asked to work for less. Right, so is it about money? Well, I think having spoken to lots of my friends in the UK over the last few days as prep for this, Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, you can't deny that everybody would feel it. I mean, to actually suddenly have a pay cut of 30% will hit them and they are worried about their livelihood, whether or not what they, whether they can progress in their education which mm. they have to pay themselves a lot throughout the years of training mm-hmm. using that uh, money that they have so i think a lot of them are yes they're worried but it's not all about money it's about being uh, having an being respected as a junior being seen as professional and being able to say what you do how you do it and um and it, when you do it do you feel you were respected as a junior doctor i think the the fact that um most people, apart from the politicians in the UK, were voicing out their support for the strike despite the risk of adverse um, consequences. consequences mm-hmm. Shows that the public do sympathise with the doctors, so they do have our respect. They want us to stay independent and um, a body of professionals with, with voice. Mm. Did you feel you were respected as a junior doctor here, well, George? Actually, you know, now now I'm talking about my days. Okay, right. Okay. I mean, I, I went to medical school 25 years ago. I mean, it's like you know, when I first came out as a houseman, and um, our weekend started at um, eight. Um, a.m. in the morning and doesn't finish until Monday evening at uh, 5 p.m. So continuously you just carry on working. And because at that time there were no European working directive times and then uh, at that time there were no um, what is legal, what's not legal and then, you know, it's a really grey area. And then so that's a time when a lot of people argue. That's when you actually learn everything. That's when you actually cut out to be tough. However, you can't deny there were consequences, there were collateral damages because the uh, the consequence is that when you're too tired, patients' lives are at risk. Mm -hmm. 
So on one hand, um, you know, you feel like that is part of what your training needs. And then all your bosses say to you that this is what you need to make a good doctor. If you survive this, you can survive anything. On the other hand, halfway through, you do feel like you, you, there are only certain things you can do. And when the number of patients are so many, then uh, it's difficult to um, triage and see whether it, you, you come across this or not. So always, I can't look back and look at the current training scheme and I felt that, you know, well, they got it nice, you know. Yeah. the. So you just uh, think they're spoiled? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> right. Right. Thank you very much. Sounds well, like so it. it sounds like it. And, then, and also, of course, in my days, you know, we had our own uh, challenges and then, you know, there were talks about uh, strikes and things like that, but never really got to that far, you know, so, you know, um, picket lines and things like that. It just sometimes doesn't feel like the right thing to do because there are certain jobs you just cannot strike, yeah. you know, doctors and, you know, um, ambulance workers and then also um, um, uh, people like who works in the, um, you know, fire brigades and also policemen. It's just simply, it's unthinkable. So in a way, I feel like the UK system is very liberal, and then, in a way, we are about 20 years behind because, you know, Fahim is going to explain a little bit about how the system works in Malaysia because we don't have specific things like European Working Time Directive and things like that. So it's interesting to see, are we heading the right direction if we follow the UK or are we really should find our own way of protecting the patients first and then protecting the junior doctors on the other hand? So is that what I really want to get out of this conversation? Were you ever considered a junior doctor here in Malaysia when you came back? No, because once you get your uh, consultantship and then basically you're no longer a junior doctor. The irony is that the junior doctors actually make more money than the, uh, the, the consultants. Here. Uh, in, 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 the in the UK, UK. that's right. You know, up to a point, the very senior, the very senior junior doctors, because the, if you ask yes, any the very consultant... Senior, that's an oxymoron. That's right, yeah. So, so <laughs> when, you, when you become, when you drop from a senior registrar to become a consultant, drop, I say, is because your salary uh, drop. But eventually, it will even out. You make a lot more, obviously, in private practice in the UK. Okay, so we'll come back and find out more. Um, I want to find out more about the Malaysian scenario. Uh, that's right. What what are rough salaries here? Um, uh, you know, doctors, junior doctors. You know what? If you're a junior doctor, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. The number is zero three seven seven one zero nine thousand. You can tweet BFM Radio or text zero one six two zero one nine thousand. What do you feel? I know there was a time when we, our doctors were overworked, houseman, you know, stuff like that. But now I hear that we've got far too many doctors. Yeah, um, which is something that you know. Um, perhaps can actually solve that problem. It's like, you know, um, UK has a vision of seven-day service. You know, this is what we have for passport service. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. It's like 10 p.m. at night, we get passport service. Can we do that for healthcare? Or is that asking for too much from healthcare? Yeah, so give us a call, 0377 Good afternoon and welcome to the show. I'm Mira Sivasudhi. It's our health and living segment and we're trying to understand what's happening in the UK at the moment. We hear of doctors, junior doctors going on strike. Well, that didn't quite happen. Um, you know, a lot of people were quite cross about that because there were reports about how with more than 20,000 20, operations and procedures were postponed under the NHS contingency plan um, because of this so-called strike. But although it was called off, um, still some of those operations 
they did not go ahead with it. So it did cause a lot of disruption um, mm. in the UK with this whole doctor situation. Uh, Dr. Ahmad Fahim Ismail is a lecturer in clinical sciences at UITM. He's back um, from the UK just six months ago to come back and serve here in Malaysia um, together with Dr. George Lee, our consultant urologist. So if you want to share your thoughts, if you're a junior doctor, I want to hear what you have to say. Give us a call. The number is 0377109000. Or so, if you think that doctors are overworked and underpay, perhaps you might have your view, um, uh, you know, about yes. how that is, uh, you know, whether that is um, something that you think yeah. is happening currently in the Malaysian situation. You don't have to worry. You or, don't have to give us your name. Yeah, that's right. Or even if you think they're overpaid. All right. Yes, it is true. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. <laughs> okay. You know, Dr. Fahim, I, I didn't quite get to, you know, your other thoughts on the situation there. I okay. mean, what else do you think um, you want to share with us yeah. regarding the situation there? I think the core of what's happening in my head is that there's a the doctors who are supposed to care for the patient feel that they're not being looked after so they feel that by taking the um, their autonomy by taking away their power to judge what's in the best patient's interest the pa- well I just well, it's another way of rephrasing it is there's a breakdown of trust in the government doctors and patients i i think i think that part i agree i think the government to bulldoze this through is a wrong thing because we really when it comes to patients care we need evidence we need evidence to suggest that whether this seven-day service is truly going to provide good service but if you get somebody who's not rested enough and then providing a service that is substandard someone's life is at risk here so there needs to be studies is there any studies that the government is using to suggest that whether this new strategy is going to be beneficial for patients or not. I mean, in my days, um, you know, we used to have uh, a study to show that uh, when we have a changeover, because uh, the junior doctors always change over in February and also in August. And during that time, it is when you have the highest risk for patients. This is because the new doctors just get into the specialties and brand new specialties and start work straight away. You're given the pager and say, okay, these are all the patients who came in last night, you are looking after them from today. And that is a scary thought, right? And I'm so, worried as a patient, George. That's right. And then so because of that, they have statistics to support that and then they change it. There's a shift system that actually you actually let you have handover and there's a buffer system because the whole country, one day, everything changed, mm-hmm. you know, second all. So, you know, that changed according to time. So, you know, is there any study to show that perhaps weekend uh, service will, uh, it is being compromised at the moment? Is there such a study? Well, the, um, the strongest paper in BMJ, uh, quality was published in June this year, I think, or even May, um, showing that there is a an international. There is an international study based in the UK, Australia, Netherlands, and the US, looking at a, ne- a population of nearly three million patients. Three million. Yes. Wow. So I think it's it's a and they what they have found is that there is a significant difference in mortality of patients who come in at the weekend. And I think that the government has used that. What are you saying? Is that, does a study say that if you go into the hospital during the weekend, your risk of dying is higher? I think that's According what... That's the patient... Well, the paper did show that association, but I'm going to use the findings of the paper with caution because they're finding an association. 
but they have not found the causality right. for right. the death. So okay. I think what you said earlier, I mean, your question, whether or not there's been any um, studies to look at the cause for this weekend effect... Yeah. Okay. So, what what you mean is government actually is using this to suggest that there should be more junior doctors working in the weekend in the UK? Is that is that what they're doing? I think they're using it as their um, defense defense to push for this with or without negotiation. Well, but it doesn't make sense, really, does it? Because you know, this, you're right. That is just a link, but the link doesn't mean a lot, right? So and then the, when, if you do read the... Well, if Jeremy Hunt did read the paper himself and actually read it thoroughly, even the authors of the, those papers says what's needed now is not... Well, they did not say in any bit of their discussion that we need a seven-day service. Mm. What they suggested that we need, or, well, we need, as in throughout the world need, is a study on why we have this effect and how we can address those causes, not suddenly decide that, seven-day service is the answer to all these predicaments. Mm-hmm. Mm. How different is, that, different is that here in Malaysia, George? In Malaysia, um, I think we also have... Uh, I think across the world, most people would assume that, um, you know, doctors, um, cl- the usual clinics, the uh, radiology, the labs and things have a less uh, reduced service over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And in the UK, it's Monday to Friday, but in Malaysia, most places will have Saturday half days. And then the rest of the time, actually, you know, even robots can't work seven days. And then, so you have reduced service. However, the services are there. So I would not think in any way that this paper actually may show um, some degree of higher mortality. But the thing is that it cannot be linked to less service because if you walk into any uh, emergency services in Malaysia over the weekend, you will still get the attention that you need. I don't think that, it, you know, in any way patient safety is being compromised. Okay. I mean, it's the same here. I mean, you over long weekends, festive holidays, you find key people not around. Mm. Um, but as you said, more junior doctors uh, are, you know, I have to serve during those periods of time, isn't it? That's right. And that's when you find a whole load of road accident fatalities. Um, that's because of the festive season, but it's... It is a very difficult problem to solve, yes. you know, when, um, you know, a lot of junior doctors and also senior doctors want to go away yeah. during that time because of festivity, really, isn't it? Exactly. Well, I think, yes, the, 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 but how, well, I think what we need to emphasise is that there is actually an existing seven-day service in the UK. The se- is there, there is a seven-day like seven emergency service. Patients don't want to come at the weekend to have an elective service if they can actually have it during yeah. the week. Mm. So they're doctors. And in fact, in England, the um, consult- there are a lot better consultant cover at the weekend these days than it used to be in the past. Mm. Well, she, you know, when... When I when you mentioned that you know patients don't really necessarily want to have weekend consultations or operations, that might not be true because right. you know in a Malaysian setting, actually Saturday is the busiest clinic. It's because it is. everyone wanted. That's the only time you can actually. I take only time go off. over the weekend. That's I mean, on right. a Saturday morning. Right. You know. And you just need to go to uh, you know um, you know the government services uh, in um, you know all that set up all the uh, JPJs and all the um, you know immigrations and in the weekend it's just crowded with yeah. people. Who I don't I want to use up my leave That's just right. to go see the doctor. Um, the Department of Health, however, 
um, Dr. Fahim has said, um, is suggesting that doctors will not see a reduced pay across the board. Um, they're saying that the proposals will actually see an average basic salary rise about 11% higher than it is now. Um, so when I'm reading, I'm like, okay, what are these guys all going on about? Is that true? I think it's a, it's a fudging of the numbers. Interpretation. Interpretation. Massaging. Very <laughs> <laughs> um, much. The pay structure for junior doctors in the UK is uh, based on the number of contracted hours and the number of uh, what they call unsociable hours that they do. Oh, so, what is this unsociable okay. hours? Sorry? So, yeah, unsociable hours is when it's actually <laughs> sociable for you to actually work. And uh, the current sociable hours in the, in the UK is uh, Monday to Friday uh, up to 8 in the evening, probably around 7 to 8 in the evening. But I think the, um, what the new um, rules set to impose is working, sociable working hours is up to 10 Monday to Saturday. So you're only really free to sleep for eight hours and then you're back to work the next day and get the pay for the sociable hours. So if you work at the moment, a lot of the junior doctors have a salary boost by working the unsociable hours because the pay per hour for those is about one and a half times, times the, mm-hmm. um, the pay overtime for time, yeah. it it is is. that's what you yes, call yeah. overtime I was lost oh, halfway through the that. sociable and unsociable oh, it's it. way too complicated <laughs> so come on let's get what? to the bottom line yeah. of this bottom that's the bottom line, line. okay okay gonna ask bottom line is James no 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 they're going to get paid no no okay in your opinion should the doctors go on strike or not in the UK they shouldn't if they they can avoid it. And okay, they, right, they have, okay. I think, um, since they got the offer, Jeremy Hunt agreed to go renegotiate. They dropped it at the last minute. Yep. And uh, Okay, I so think, who's right, who's wrong here? I think both sides. That's have it. so politicians are kind of answer. So <laughs> he hasn't finished. Like, <laughs> no, I think that, that's why they're re- renegotiating. I think, I think from, from my point of view and from where I stood, um. I'm with it on the genius doctors. All oh, right, okay. So okay. we clearly heard a lot about UK system. Yeah. In some way, doesn't really affect us that much. No. But it's interesting to observe from a distance. But we want to hear about your views about Malaysian, uh, you know, um, kind of like a training scheme. Tell us, give us some ideas about what sort of, uh, you know, uh, if we have parents out there who want their kids to be live, uh, you know, to be uh, doctors, and you know exactly, you know, tell us what sort of training scheme they will go through, what sort of hours they'll be working. And then how long it will take before they become a doctor? We'll and come then after, back. you know, we come back. We'll come back. More importantly, I want to ask both of you whether or not you thought it was ethical for those doctors to go on strike. Mm. What do you think um, out there? Give us a call. Um, I'm sure. I mean, I, I'm not pleased. I think this is one line you should never go Cross. on strike. That's right. Come on. I'm just surprised that they actually get yeah. support from the public, which yeah. was quite uh, extraordinary. Yeah. So give us a call. The number zero three seven seven one zero nine thousand. What would you do if your, you know, government doctors decided to go on strike? Um, would you be pleased or not? I mean, just share your thoughts with us. Um, we'll liberal. be back. We'll be back right after the market update on BFM eighty nine point nine. Good afternoon. If you have just joined us, we'll welcome. 
I'm Mira Sivasudhi. It's our Health and Living segment. It's Friday. Dr. George Lee, consultant neurologist in the studio with us. Today we're talking about something very not disease-related um, for a change with Dr. Ahmad Fahim Ismail. He's a lecturer in clinical sciences, UITM. Um, we're discussing the Department of Health in the UK who's attempting to push through a new contract for junior doctors that would force them to work longer hours without extra pay. And of course, as a result, they threaten to go on strike. So my question before we left off is, do you think it's ethical or not to for doctors to go on strike, George? Well, I, well I, I, it's difficult to, you know, obviously, I'm out of system there for about eight years. If we ever, ever had that sort of scenario in Malaysia, I don't think I can even hold my, hold my head high to in front of patients to, to you know, <laughs> if I kind of like a, go on strike. I think that's one line um, that, like you said, that is difficult to cross, but it must be, they must be pushed so hard that they feel like they have no... Uh, avenue to vent their anger and then going as public as this as possible might get the attention and then might um, actually fight back the um, the government. Mm-hmm. However, I, I think it is, um, it is a very sad situation that is happening to NHS, which is a very great organisation. Dr Fahim? Well, I think a lot of the doctors who decided to go on the ballot and go for the strike had did so with really heavy heart Mm. and I think the condition of the strike is actually it's not a simple strike where everybody walked out so they're providing the emergency service that was still running so this the only the the first strike that was planned on the 1st of December would only affect the elective services so there are enough reassurances that they're not putting lives at risk I think that's mm-hmm. that, that's how some of the doctors, despite going to the ballot, could still sleep at night because they don't feel that safety has been compromised. Sa- safety has mm-hmm. been compromised. But isn't the whole idea itself contrary to the Hippocratic oath that you took um, when you promised to you know, first do no harm, yes, and do good? Mm-hmm. I think that, I think they've they've addressed that. Uh, they 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 think they would not do any immediate harm by provo- by maintaining the emergency service. So that's one. And secondly, in the long run, I think the, it is respons- responsible of the government to be able to look after the welfare of the doctors, so that these doctors can look after the welfare of their patients. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a disconnect even in Malaysia, George, between policymakers? Politicians and healthcare pr- practitioners. I have no idea. George, <laughs> you're in the system. I am in the system. Actually, you know, when I looked at the and you were in government. That's right. I, I was and in government. So I think you know, healthcare is a very com- complex organisation because the stakeholders are huge, and then we, and constantly we have to put patients' care uh, on top of that, and then on top of that you have uh, you know a service provider. Then resources comes into this, and then government policy makers come into this. So it is extremely complex just to answer in one line. I mean, I, I, I want to uh, particularly talk about this subject because I have, both of us have teenage kids mm-hmm. who potentially can think about medicine as a career. Interestingly, everyone assumes my kid's going to be doctors. And then interestingly, also, I find that increasingly um, difficult to uh, encourage them to take on medicine. Because? Uh, it was partly because the... Um, the complexity is the whole thing, you know, because it, it's, it's, it's actually easy for patients to see a snapshot of a consultant and then this is your life and this is easy. But it is a 
17 to 18 years journey. It's not that I don't see my kids actually can live through that journey. I mean, I'm quite interested to see Farum's kind of viewpoint about what a journey of a UITM student is going to be like. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so that will kind of throw some lights into those uh, parents out there who are listening who think that, you know, it will be a glamorous thing for your kids to go through. Tell us a little bit what sort of journey do we have to go through if, if my kids today apply for UITM? I think I like the, your use of the word glamorous, George. I think that might be the life you live now. But, uh, <laughs> certainly okay. not, not the life of many doctors. He's uh, one in a there. million. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right. All right, okay. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think it's not, it might not be glamorous, but I, I think we can introduce a lot of fun and enjoyable element to medical education here. Yeah, so think, what's his journey? So the journey, I would probably start the journey as a first-year medical student. I think because that's what, what I know and what I'm directly involved in. So in UITF, at the moment, we have the courses split into um, two sections over five years. So you do the basic science, what we call the preclinical two years of learning anatomy, physiology, pharmacology as um, a core subject or as the core subjects. And um, I think we're trying, or the vision is to introduce clinical aspects of those sciences early as well. But as soon as you get to the third year, you'll be thrown into the deep end. You're seeing patients on the ward. You're seeing how and how the knowledge that you've learned can be applied to patient care in those three years. So upon completion of those five years... Then you get a DR in front of your name. You get in front of your name. You get MBBS if you're from in, in uh, UITM. So that's Masters of Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery. And after that? And after that, you'll spend two years in um, as a houseman. Uh, it will be a combination of a few different jobs which we think will be important for any doctors in Malaysia to practice. So for you to explore your interest. Oh. In some way. In some way. Yeah, okay. And, and for you to yeah, find a speciality that you, or mentor that you think will take you through your journey as a junior doctor for how many years you do it for. Okay. If someone chooses to become a general practitioner, and then what sort of journey will they go beyond that? I think these days for general practitioner, they do need the, to go through the pathway of doing a primary um, primary family doc, fam, family medicine as a uh, master mm-hmm. master's program. Um, I have to say, I'm not familiar with the in UK. It's about well, four years right after that, or may not. Well, be. I think the um, as, as you surgeon, don't know. Yeah, oh, okay. For a surgeon, for surgeons, well, in Malaysia, for example, yeah. you'd have to finish your um, housemanship for over that period of two years. Most people would go through being an MO, which is a medical officer, for mm-hmm. how many years until they can uh, find or they, they can um, get a place to undertake their master's programme in surgery. Okay, so medical officer for X number of years, depending on how well you do, yeah. and you progress into a, um, a master's. Yeah. Uh, Let's look at the salaries. Um, how much would a doctor, okay. uh, 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 a right. houseman, okay. you know, start off his salary? Okay. With government, I think in um, Malaysia, I think we're talking about a starting salary of um, probably about th- around, around the number of about three thousand three thousand ringgit, ringgit okay. uh, with and plus the perks and the allowances that come that come with it. Okay, so, Mira, are um, you surprised? Three thousand as a houseman in government. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a pretty decent sum. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking on average entry level, I think it's 2,500. Um, sometimes even 2,002. I don't know. Okay. Um, but you think it's reasonable? I think it's all right. Yeah. And yeah. then against the bike, you know, work, probably still stay, uh, uh, people send their laundry back to the After that, make a name. And after that, you start going up depending on where you go. And I think there's an increment system, the um, as per JPA directive every year. But I think in the as the, you go to as at the level of junior executive SNMO, you'll probably be talking about the level of about sort of close to four thousand in the next few years as you progress through the um, the years as a SNMO and. Mm-hmm. Um, the once you become specialist, there'll be more perks, and there, there'll be a, a few time-based mm. uh, cre- um, salary progression as well as uh, qualification-based. Do you know uh, comparatively with other professions any other kind of uh, benchmark that you can use? I think we're not. I think doctors are not doing too shabbily on average com- for um, across. I think um, if you go by what the statistics I get, I got from. Um, the the doc, doctors always fare within the top ten best paid um, at the, le- the appropriate levels of service and uh, responsibility. But let's be practical. Did was money a motivation at all for either of you um, becoming a doctor? Oh, I, my only motivation is my mum pushed me into it. It's a typical Chinese, uh, you know, family story. It's like, you know, but you must love know, it because well, I, I love what I do. It's like but, uh, conveniently, I love what I do, but it could turn uh, the other way around. But I, I love what I do. The only thing that uh, kind of um, motivates me to. Um, I mean, it sounds a bit corny, but the thing is that the rewards that you get is truly is gratitude from patients that you make diagnosis and you make uh, you treat the patient, you treat the condition, and then um, they go back and then completely thankful for what you've done, and that is what makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Well, I think money helps me to sleep in a nice bed, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think reality. The, is. But then the the job gets me to wake up in the morning fresh wanting to go to work again mm-hmm. and I think that motivates me I think this that but I, I need to I know I need to highlight that you know I, I I don't get to see the kids much and then you know that's one thing that I think probably put the kids off medicine because they they probably you know in their mind thinking that I don't want to live like that but like any other career we are compromising a lot of our work-life balance and also family you're not the only one I've spoken to a couple of doctors who said the same thing and in fact they discourage their children from becoming doctors well I think if you live through a household like that you know you realize that your father is never home and then or your mother is never home some some people just already actively make that decision at young age yeah but if you you know have a passion for it then that's an entirely different thing isn't it yes Okay, we're going to have one quick call. Hi, who's on the line? Could you turn off your um, radio, please? Yes, my name is Anil. Okay. Uh, I'm a senior uh, mental doctor in government sector. Yeah, hi. Uh, just wanted to clarify about the household's role. Uh, two things. Um, one, uh, the houseman do a two-year housemanship these days, mm-hmm. which involves six different postings of four months each. Mm-hmm. And they must successfully complete and satisfy the requirements before they move on to the next uh, posting in their uh, service. Okay. Uh, the starting pay of the houseman now, uh, okay, the, the, the gross pay is about... 4,000 in the first year. Wow. It's actually 4,005 in the first year. That includes the allowances they get. Yes. Because so, 
they, they do a 12-hour shift these days and they do not get any out-of-hours uh, call allowance. So it is just a gross pay of about uh, 4500 uh, all-in. Mm. Um, in the second year, they get a $300 increment, which means uh, in UK terms, there's pittance. But of course, in Malaysia, it's, a, it's, it's so significant. It. You, you may call it a different sum as you did just now, but still, uh, most husbands take big loans to study medicine. They have a big loan to service as yeah. well. Your point being announced, I apologize, we're running out of time. Uh, okay. 12-hour shifts are not light, and it's about 76 hours uh, a week, and they work long hours, and most housemen work far longer than that. They don't go off shift as soon as their time is up. Mm. So. It's long, uh, strenuous, two years. Okay. All right. I'm with the houseman if they want to strike. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Okay, we may be encouraging the wrong things here. (laughs) The Minister of Health is not listening. uh, I think we're encouraging dialogue. (laughs) We are actually, yes. Healthy Um, negotiation. Yeah, Um, this is mental health, um, right? Um, It really depends on how many people are in the area as well, Mm. right? Um, How do we prioritise how many housemen go to surgery, how many go to you know, ENT, that kind of thing, right? Um, well, actually, it's, it's, it's driven by, um, you know, uh, market forces. Okay. You know, uh, in fact, when you actually get, um, let's say, for example, elderly care, you actually get more and more patients and then that is where you need to allocate uh, the, uh, the more junior doctors there. Then naturally, that will uh, get the resources to, to have the natural. So we're in denial as far as mental health is concerned? Then? Well, well, I, I think... Because um, I should think there's a huge demand in that area at the moment. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yep. We, we, we don't have specific statistics to back up how many housemen there are. But the thing is that we hear reports that there are way too many um, doctors being trained at the moment. And then so it will be interesting one day for us to clarify exactly how many more that we have trained and how many, what, how many actually made it to a specialist or GP training. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, your message. We're running out of time. Yeah, I think, I think, what would you like to leave us with, Dr. Fahim? Uh, I think... Um, there are ways to improve the service and I think everybody should get involved to improve a service and what we put out for the patients. And the government, the doctors and the patient body themselves can actually play a role and work as a team, not, in, not, to, not to have that system crumble. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the interesting thing in UK, it was testing the limit and pushing the envelope and see, you know, this is, we always assume this is one line that doctors never cross. And then clearly they have reached a boiling point. And then I think clearly they need more dialogue to resolve this problem for the sake of patients. Mm-hmm. Why isn't there any dialogue? I mean, that's a pretty simple solution, actually. Well, they're having dialogue now and hope, uh, I wish them the best. Yes. And, you know, they've got a January 13th deadline yeah. um, before which... Um, what happens if talks fall through by then? They well, should do Malaysian way, so which, is, you know, which is just um, like that, law. Push through, <laughs> or push through a bill, push. <laughs> whether you like it or not. Nah. Um, okay, All right. thank you both very thank much you. for thank joining you. me today, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist, and Dr. Ahmad Fahim Ismail, a lecturer in clinical sciences at UITM on the Bigger Picture BFM eighty nine point nine. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.